Well, please turn with me now in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I'm going to read briefly from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. In this first half of the psalm or so, not the psalm, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This first half of the chapter is going to provide a little bit of context for our sermon. Our sermon this morning is coming from Acts chapter 25. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 over there, Acts chapter 25. But before we turn over to that passage, let's look briefly at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. Ecclesiastes is the Latin word for church. The book itself is not pertaining to the church in any particular unique way. It's just the name that it was given a very long time ago. It's actually in the Hebrew Bible known as Kohelet, because that's the first Hebrew word, and the Hebrew Bible names its books after the first Hebrew word that you find in it. And Kohelet means the preacher, the teacher. And that's what Solomon calls himself in this book, the preacher, the teacher. And here is what Solomon, the preacher-teacher, has for us this morning. A bit of wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Hear the word of the Lord. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men. And the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirits to be angry. For anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Consider the work of God. For who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Amen. Solomon's wisdom can be confusing, can it? How many of you sometimes read Proverbs, or especially the book of Ecclesiastes, and think, what is wise about that? How is this wise to say that the end is better than the beginning, death is better than birth? Thinking about death, grieving death, mourning and weeping and being sorrowful, these things are all better? I mean, I'm a 21st century American like the rest of you. I like parties more than I like funerals. 
But Solomon says, I have it backwards. How could this be? Let me give you another illustration that Solomon had not thought of, not descending from Greek cultures. Which mile of the marathon is best? The first or the last? In like manner, friends, Solomon observes that achievement eclipses beginning. It is better to succeed, to achieve, to arrive than it is to start out. He takes that principle that we so readily recognize in so many areas of life and he applies it to life itself. And we become stunned. For we like life and we don't want it to end. We like this world and we don't want it to end. And yet Solomon in all of his wisdom forces us to do what we otherwise would not do. See eternity. And recognize that the earth and all of the earthly treasures that we have here are eclipsed by eternity. Something is better just around the corner. With that in mind, turn over to Acts chapter 25. We're returning very briefly this morning to our sermon series from Acts 25. I debated, given what August looks like, not returning to Acts until September. So I've got the Psalm of the Month last week. I'm going to preach on Psalm 125 next week in preparation for the celebration. Jonathan Watt will then be here to preach for the celebration. Then the fifth Sunday of August would be my first time coming back. But when I looked at this sermon text and prepared the sermon for it, I realized it's rather timely. I'm going to go with Jesus's plan and we're going to hear Acts 25. It's just a very appropriate text for this morning. So Acts chapter 25, let me read verses 1 through 12. Acts 25, 1 through 12. Here again, the word of the Lord. Now when Festus had come to the province after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law, nor of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. 
I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Amen and amen. The bicycle is one of man's best inventions. The feel of the wheel on the road, the swing of the pedals beneath the feet, the surge of the sprint rising out of the saddle to climb the hill. It is a beautiful thing. But perhaps what I love best about the bike is the ability to immerse yourself in a beautiful world and to move slowly through it, taking in all its wonder and its joy. Over the few weeks of time in Montana, I had a few rides passing through this wonderful, picturesque countryside including coming to the inevitable things that you find in western Montana, mountains. You may have noticed that when I described all the beautiful and wonderful things about bikes, I left out one-third of the places you can bike. I loved sprinting down the straightaways of Montana. I loved rising up out of the saddle and ascending the hills of Montana. But, of course, when you get to the top, the old physics principle takes over and you have to go down. And I do not love descending steep, long hills on a bike. I learned something very important as I turned around on the steep hill of Montana and I began to descend. You cannot enjoy the beautiful creation that is around you. Not at 40 miles an hour. You can't even look at it. In fact, all you can do is maintain a death grip on your brakes and hope that the line that you have drawn on the road is not impeded by oncoming traffic. There is this need to stay focused as you descend. Dear saints, we have a text before us that reminds us to stay focused. That reminds us that as we climb in this life, as we descend in this life, as times go well and as times go poorly, whatever we face, we have the need to return to Christ as the foundation and focus of our faith. The Apostle Paul sets before us this morning a wonderful example of a man focused on Christ and illustrates through the brilliant pen of Luke, who through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit gives us this tale of how we must stay focused on Christ. Let's keep this in mind as we go through the text. Notice first of all, friends, that the text is given to us in two parts. There really are two stories here put together in parallel through Luke's genius. This is a common Hebrew maneuver. Parallelism. Symmetry. In which in the first part we get a time stamp. Notice in verse 1. Festus has been in Caesarea three days. And he goes up into Jerusalem. Notice what Luke then records in verse 6. Having been in Jerusalem ten days, he goes down to Caesarea. Immediately, we as diligent, careful readers should think verses 1 and 6 must be parallel. There is a reference to time and a trip that is inverted. Three days in Caesarea leads to a trip to Jerusalem. Ten days in Jerusalem leads to a trip in Caesarea. Luke is intentionally building this into the structure of the story. We see, secondly, that the pattern holds. 
Because when he arrives in Jerusalem, the Jews inform Festus against Paul. When he arrives back in Caesarea, the Jews complain against Paul. And then thirdly, we see Festus's answer. He answers, let's go to Caesarea. Then again in verse 9, he answers, let's go to Jerusalem. The verses that stand out in this text like a sore thumb, that don't fit this pattern that Luke has created, are Paul's response in verses 10 through 12. They are the emphasis. They are the meat of the story, the heart of the text. They don't fit the pattern, and Luke intends it that way, so that we see them clearly and learn from them. So let's build then to them. Notice first that Festus is the new governor in verse 1, and he spends three days getting his house in order in Caesarea. I don't know how long it takes an Air Force commander to set his barracks in order, to set his office in order, but Festus's military installation in Caesarea is evidently in pretty good shape. It takes about three days for him to assume command. Having taken command, having established himself in Caesarea, he then goes up to Jerusalem. He then goes up to receive the official welcome of his new subjects. He's not only the military commander of the Roman city of Caesarea, he is also the Jewish governor in Jerusalem. Not that he's Jewish, but that he's the governor of the Jews in Jerusalem. This is a moment that launches into our story all kinds of hope and expectation. You see, Paul has been languishing for two years in Caesarea, waiting for Felix to give him an answer. And Felix won't do it. Two years in house arrest, there on the coast, watching the ships to Rome that he so desperately wants to board pass without him. Paul sees the new governor come. Festus arrives and comes into Caesarea. He begins to handle the administration, sign the papers, take command, and you can imagine Paul's hope awakens. He might get out of here. He might escape. Friends, we come to these seasons of life in which transition might awaken hope. In which we could imagine for ourselves, what is Jesus doing with us here? We can begin to dream. What might Jesus do with us here? In a few weeks, we will celebrate 125 years here on Antrim Street. But even as we look back and marvel at the faithfulness of God for a century and a quarter, let us also ask the question, what might He yet be doing? Even as we rejoice in what He has done, let us wonder, what will He yet do? Even as we celebrate the faithfulness of one deacon who has endured, even as we rejoice in four more joining the board, Let us wonder, what might Jesus be doing? What might Jesus do with us and through us? The presbytery has prompted us to begin praying for church planting. What might Jesus do? Friends, is there some sense of vision in your heart? Who are we here? And what will we do with the time that is given us? People in Boston come and go, and I don't know how long Jesus has given you. 
Are you here for five more? Twenty-five more. What will you do with the time you are given? We stand at this transition in this year. The restrictions have begun to lift. What will you do with your new lease on life? Will you just go back to the old life? Will you seek out something new and say, what would Jesus have me do with the freedoms I have, with the time I have? Well, let us look at the text and see what Jesus might be doing. And notice, first of all, it is something rather unexpected. In verses 2 and 3, as Festus comes into Jerusalem, he's met by the high priest and the chief men of the Jews who closet with him, perhaps near the temple And they speak to him about their situation with the Apostle Paul. This guy's been in Judea three days. They waste no time. They have their list of grievances. The Jews never liked their Roman governors. But at the top of their list is Felix's failure to deal with Paul. Immediately he is presented with this problem. There is a Roman citizen and the Jews want him dead. Festus realizes he has inherited a crisis from his predecessor. They petition him something that seems innocent enough. That ancient plan that they had conceived two years prior. Let's bring him up to Jerusalem and there try him. Let's hold court here. But of course, as we see in verse 3, their real plan is to ambush him on the road and murder him. You see, my friends, sometimes what Jesus is doing to us is exposing us to the assaults and attacks of our enemies. Sometimes what the future holds for us is trial and tribulation. But interestingly enough, in verses 2 and 3, these problems aren't new. These are the same problems Paul has faced for the past two years. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem want him dead. Isn't it startling? How often our times and seasons change, and we do not. 125 years later, and I suspect that we are facing very similar problems as our long-deceased predecessors. How unsurprising to discover after 125 years. If you want to know more, you can probably ask Patrick, who's been reading the minutes for the last 125 years. Wow. They dealt with sinners. Wow, they dealt with sufferers. And the story just didn't change much, did it? I'm afraid I have some rather direct news for the deacons elect and their families. There is no super spiritual grace that you will receive when you are ordained that makes your sins go away. To the contrary, my friends. The weight and work to which you are being entered into carries with it a tremendous burden that will lay bare all your weakness and set yourselves up as an example of Christ's strength and not your own. In like manner, if we were to set out on church planting, if we were to set out on reaching the lost, would we find ourselves selfish and weak? We surely would. Indeed, whatever season of life we are steering into, 
Whatever ambition this congregation is aiming for, whatever is the strategic plan for the next five or 25 years, of this much we can be sure, my friends, we will be attacked by Satan and assaulted by our own sins. We will be waylaid by our weaknesses. These things are sure. But equally sure, equally confident this morning, we can be convinced that Christ will overcome them all. Luke makes this plain in verses 4 and 5. Festus answers that Paul is being kept at Caesarea. That is to say, it is inconvenient to bring Paul up to Jerusalem. He says likewise that he himself is going to Caesarea soon. That is to say, it is more convenient to proceed with Paul's trial in Caesarea. And then in verse 5, he makes an unusual offer. He says, let those of authority ready to make an accusation come with me. He, in a sense, offers to pay their travel expenses. I can see how it is inconvenient for you to go down from Jerusalem to Caesarea. I will solve that problem. Travel with me. I will bear the cost of the road. In this way, Festus in a weak-willed, selfish manner, seeks the most convenient route forward. He's not being a man of integrity. He's not being a man of courage. He's looking for the most convenient solution to the political problem. He's trying to butter them up as well by paying their expenses. But unbeknownst to Festus, he's not the one in charge. This brief effort that he makes is underneath the sovereignty of Christ, who is steering him like a pawn on the chessboard to bring about the protection of Paul. Paul will not be exposed to the knives of the Jews. Paul will not be rendered defenseless on the road to Jerusalem because in the selfish sinfulness of Festus, Jesus has found a willing instrument to protect the life of Paul. Beloved, we will be assaulted by our sins. And by that, Christ will show Himself strong. And will save us to the uttermost and sanctify us entirely. Beloved, we will be attacked by Satan. And Jesus will show Himself a mighty warrior. Able to protect His people. Able to use even the hatred and bitterness of our foes to bring about our salvation. He has shown it again and again throughout the scriptures. He is mighty to save. And even our greatest problems will prove instruments of His grace and glory. These three patterns, friends. A time of change giving rise to hope. Being beset by the ancient sins and sorrows of God's people. Christ revealing Himself competent for the fight able to win, are now repeated again. As we see in verse 6, Festus, after ten days, goes down to Caesarea. And on the very next day, he wastes no time. Now, you guys can do the math here, right? Three days he's in Caesarea. Ten days he's in Jerusalem. The next day, this is the 14th day, the man's been in town two weeks How long does it take to spin somebody up? I feel like after four years, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm doing here. 
After 14 days, Festus sits on the judgment seat and commands Paul to be brought before him. This is the right environment. This is the right context. The Roman governor is seated on the throne of Roman judgment. And before him comes the Roman citizen. The Jews align to make their accusation. But even in this image, as you see the Roman there seated on his judgment seat, we get a glimpse of what is happening here that is far greater than what Rome could have ever dreamt of. For as we are about to see, Roman judgment fails and does not achieve the glory to which it aimed. And it is true of every kingdom and empire men have ever made. They do not achieve the judgment to which they aspire. But rather, we are able through this text to lift our gaze to a heavenly judgment seat. A higher tribunal. A governor of greater worth and glory who is seated in judgment in glory. Jesus Christ himself. Do we not know that our judge is not slow? Does it feel like Jesus takes a long time to get anything done? That he moves so slowly? It is not so, my friends. Did you hear from 2 Peter? The Lord is not hasty, but neither is he late. No, his timing is perfect. And his judgments are just. He rules with a righteousness to which the humans of this earth cannot aspire yet continually dream. He is the just judge to whom we must lift our eyes. We cannot look to the transitions of this age. Let me be explicit. The occupant of the White House is not the answer to our problem. The occupant of the throne of glory is. Let me be explicit. The occupant of this pulpit is not your savior. The occupant of heaven's throne He is your Savior. My friends, we must learn to look higher. To focus not on the changes of this world. How much hope can be birthed in our hearts when we see something change and we say, Ah, we have new deacons. The answer is solved. Indeed it is not. It was solved 2,000 years ago on the cross. We have not needed new deacons as desperately as we have needed Jesus. My friends, we do not begin to pray for church planting and dream of the years that are to come as if our strategic vision was the answer to which we were looking. It is not. We've had it all along in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must learn to look higher than the seats of judgment that we find in this world. We must learn to look higher than the ambitions of our hearts and to see Jesus enthroned in glory and to see the justice the justice. He will bring to us. It is in this manner, my friends, that we can then see how Jesus is handling his enemies. For they begin to gather about Paul in Caesarea, having come down from Jerusalem, and they make many serious complaints against Paul. No longer are they informing the governor, you've got this guy and he's kind of a problem. Instead, now they complain against him. He must die. He must be tried in Jerusalem. But they cannot 
prove these complaints. There are several problems, the chief of which is they have no evidence. Have you guys ever been in a courtroom? What happens to accusations that lack evidence? They don't last very long. They get thrown out. And here they come and they say, he has defiled the temple. And Paul goes, which one? Which Gentile did I bring in the temple? I did not bring a a Gentile into the temple. None of you saw one. You're making it up out of your own heads, to quote Nehemiah. He says, against the law of the Jews, I have done nothing. I didn't tell the Jews to stop obeying Moses. I told the Gentiles they don't need to start. I didn't do anything against the temple. I didn't bring Trophimus the Ephesian in there. You saw me with him in the streets of Jerusalem, not in the halls of the temple. And then he adds in there this interesting tidbit. Nor again, Caesar, have I done anything. That's a little slight, you know, dig there. The Jews are probably not complaining about Paul's conduct regarding Caesar. But he's reminding his Roman governor, you're answerable to Caesar. Your job is to represent Caesar. And I haven't done anything that bothers Caesar. In fact, every step of his journey in which he's gone about the Roman Empire, Paul has flexed his Roman muscles. He has employed the rights and privileges of Roman citizenship, which is here expressed in Caesarea. In this way, my friends, we see the genius of our Jesus, who has left Paul completely and apparently innocent. Nothing can stick. It's like the brilliant moment when Jesus goes from trial to trial and slanderous accusations are thrown against him and hurled into his heart. But not one can be proven even remotely true. In a far greater way, Christ stood as the most slandered yet entirely sinless man that ever lived. Yet in this small way, the Apostle Paul stands united to Christ, facing the outrageous slanders of his enemies, facing their fierce accusations which are entirely baseless and boundless. And friends, let us see this in our future. Is it not hard to love someone who interprets your love as hate? Is it not hard to speak the truth to a world that says truth is hatred? Will we not be slandered? Will we not be wrongfully accused? Will indeed not this world gossip against us? Such wickedness that is at work within us. And yet, my friends, we have this tremendous comfort Are we not by faith the possessors of the righteousness of Jesus Christ? In innocence which this world cannot touch. I hope you didn't expect me to preach your innocence. We know our guilt too well, do we not? As a congregation, we are not sinless nor perfect. But as a congregation of Jesus Christ, we are the recipients of His sinless and perfect Righteousness. Just as we must learn through the seats of judgment set about us in this world to lift our eyes and to focus on Jesus, the true judge, 
So through the slanders and sufferings of this age, we must learn to look up to the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And we must learn to account all our sorrows as a taste of his sufferings for our sin. We must learn to see our union with Christ when we are slandered and accused and wrongly treated. When they would heap shame upon our souls, my friends, let us see Jesus and know that we are like him. When they would despise us and accuse us, let us find treasure in being like Jesus. This brings us then to the third parallel. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, said, are you willing to go to Jerusalem? Before Festus had invited the Jews to come down to Caesarea, unwittingly and selfishly providing protection for Paul, here he reveals his true state of mind, that he is a political plaything, having no more integrity or courage than his predecessor. His governorship will not supply Paul with protection or defense. He exposes Paul to the fang, the tooth, the vicious, murderous intentions of the Jews. And Paul is now at risk. So Paul answers. This extraordinary answer. He says in verse 10, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat. He reminds Festus of his responsibility. You are the judge appointed by Caesar. This is the right house of judgment. Don't send me up to Jerusalem to be murdered on the way. No, this is the house of judgment. You are to give justice here where I ought to be judged. He says to the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. He points out that Festus's unwillingness to hand down a guilty verdict proves his innocence. When was there ever a Roman governor who didn't delight in destroying a guilty Jew? Or an innocent one. The fact that Festus is hesitant to punish Paul proves his innocence. Thirdly, he says, I'm not worried about death. If I am an offender, if I've committed anything deserving of death, I don't object. I've been whipped by Roman governors. That's okay. We can do that again. I've been stoned by Jewish mobs. That's okay. We can do that again. I'm, I don't object to dying. Been there before. It's, you know, not so bad. I get to see Jesus. But Paul is a man on a mission, able to focus on Christ and says, but there is nothing that can deliver me to them. Why? Why does Paul so viciously resist being turned over to Jerusalem? Paul doesn't want to go to Jerusalem. He wants to go to Rome. And do you remember what Jesus said to him so many chapters and so many weeks ago? Paul, you will go to Rome. Paul believes the promise of God. Paul believes the promise of Jesus Christ that he shall surely go to Rome. And he says, no one can deliver me to them. Paul believes in his immortality. They can't kill me. Not this week, not next week. Not until I get to Rome. They can kill me when I get to Rome, but not before. Jesus 
promised I will get to Rome. For Paul, that settles it. My friends, we must learn to see Jesus. To lift up our eyes and to focus on Jesus. And to believe His promises and His power. Will He do good things with us in the years to come? Will He build His kingdom in this place? And so Paul says, yes, I appeal to Caesar. There are two remarkable things about these four little words. First, is this appeal, this right to appeal has existed for the last two years. This is the ace in the hold that Paul has been sitting on for two years. Don't ever tell me Paul's impatient. He has been patiently enduring house arrest in Caesarea. Longing to be on those ships to Rome. He has always had a get out of jail free card. And until this moment, he never played it. He stayed and he preached the gospel. He stayed and he built up the church. And now at last, without hope or recourse, without any other choice, he plays his card. That's the second most remarkable thing about it. I appeal to Caesar is a strict legal phrase that when a Roman citizen standing before a Roman judge says those four words, the trial ends immediately. The case is closed. The file is sealed up. Nothing more can be done until the citizen stands before Caesar. It is a permanent, invaluable right of every Roman citizen. So Festus, in verse 12, confers with his counsel and responds with the strict legal response. You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. This is what the Roman governor legally must say. Paul has bound him with this legal maneuver. Paul will go to Rome. Two years he's been longing to go to Rome. Two years it's been his mission, his objective, and he has sought it at every avenue. At last he finds his ride to Rome. Do you see the genius of Jesus? Does Jesus know how to run the world or what? That he should make of the Roman Empire a pack mule and say, hey, I have a guy who needs to get to Rome. Give him a ride, will you? This extraordinary brilliance, this extraordinary glory by which we must see clearly this morning, Jesus runs the world. There is no kingdom or empire that is not his pawn. There is no pandemic that is not his toy or instrument. My friends, there is no 125 years that has ever come or gone over which Christ has not exercised supreme power and authority by which he has not built his kingdom out of the kingdoms of this world, by which he has not ascended into the glory of his grace. Beloved, let us believe, as we look back on these past 125 years, as we look forward to the 5, 25, 125 to come, let us believe Jesus runs this world. And so let us stay focused on him. Let us look to Him. My friends, as we go from one deacon to five deacons, Lord willing, in six weeks. Let us stay focused on Him.
Let us believe this is Him running the world. As we dream of church plants, as we dream of reaching the lost, as we dream of what Jesus might do with us, let us dream with our eyes and hearts fixed on Jesus, believing that it is He who runs the world. Dear saints, Jesus runs the world. Fix your eyes on Him. Jesus runs the world. Keep your focus on Him. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we give You thanks for this beautiful day, for the bright sunshine. We give You thanks for the joy of worship and the reminder, this incredible illustration of Your sovereign power as King and Head of the Church, as King and Head of the nations, that Jesus Himself bends the empires of this world for the building up of His church. We thank You, Father, that the mission to which He gave His disciples advances undaunted, undiminished, unthwarted. And pray this day that You would renew our confidence in Christ, that we would believe that He is indeed the High King in Heaven, ruling over all things. And that You would lift up our gaze from the problems and trials of this life to see Jesus. And out of the confidence of His reign, to live boldly for Him. Grant us this sweet grace today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.